0: Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 55, August 2022. Language versus reality. A conversation with Nick Enfield. Hi, this is Paul Meyer again. I'm dedicating this podcast to the memory of my dear friend, David Wason, who died June 18th, 2022. David and I studied acting together at the Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama and then we both went on to the University of Kent at Canterbury, where we read English Lit. He was a hugely successful and respected producer for Granada Television in England. There, among other projects, he was series producer, and produced and or directed many episodes of the highly acclaimed ethnographic documentary series Disappearing World. I'll miss you, David. My deepest condolences to his family. Time for guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. So I was working on the restoration. Okay, I was I was
1: uh, skinny, and they would uh, lower me and a couple of other guys into a dungeon. Actually, yeah, there was the, it
0: was air dots so kind of kind of dangerous and, and lots of fun. Now that uh, particular building, it's a church, and it's fully restored. So what do you think? If you guessed Ukraine, well done. It was Ideas Ukraine 4. It was contributed by Gina Lovato under the supervision of senior editor David Neville. Thanks, David and Gina. The subject was born in Kiev to find the whole sample. Go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and choose Ukraine from the Europe tab. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. Get the answer next time. If you've been meaning to get a copy of my accents and dialects for stage and screen, the new deluxe streaming version, now is a great time. We have a summer sale in progress, running until August 15th, both on palmire.com and on Amazon. My guest this month is Nick Enfield, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sydney in Australia. Over the last three decades, he's conducted fieldwork on language, culture, mind and society in mainland Southeast Asia, especially Laos. He won an Ig Nobel Prize for his role in discovering that huh is a universal word in the languages of the world. I'd forgotten about this parody of the real Nobel Prizes. He's published numerous books in linguistics and anthropology, including Roots of Human Sociality, The Utility of Meaning, The Languages of Mainland Southeast Asia, How We Talk, the inner workings of conversation. And most recently, just published by MIT Press, Language Versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. So Nick, welcome. My ideas were hugely influenced by this wonderful book. Everyone should read it. I'm recommending it to all my friends. Language Versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. What an intriguing title. Uh, I want you to explain the ideas behind the title of the book. You're using scientists and lawyers in a figurative sense, I think, more metaphorically,
1: right? Yeah, that's right. I am using the concepts of lawyers and scientists to say something that other authors before me have said using different terms. So a recent book by Julia Galef referred to soldiers versus scouts. Hmm. Jonathan Haidt, for example, has talked about different modes, defend mode and discover mode. And these correlate with what I'm calling lawyers and scientists. So without wanting to offend any actual lawyers or scientists, what I'm talking about are these two different kind of ways that we can approach ideas and information, one being the lawyer's way. And that is the idea that we are defending a position, we have some belief or we have some proposition that we're trying to put forward and we're trying to defend it and justify it and give reasons why others should believe us and convince others and persuade others of this position. And one can be a lawyer without committing to whether that proposition is true. You would hope that it is, but it's part of the profession that, uh, you know, just as in being on a debating team, you take a position for a certain purpose. And, uh, you know, when people learn debating, they learn that you can separate actually being committed to the position from constructing arguments that would defend that position. And this is this is the idea of, of the lawyer, the one who seeks to defend a position, whether or not it's true. And the scientist is not invested in sort of which proposition turns out to be the right one they just want to find out what the facts are and uh, i hasten to say of course that real scientists aren't like <laughs> this perfect image so you know they fiercely defend the turf and their theses <laughs> absolutely absolutely so this is not a not an idea uh, about you know real lawyers and real scientists right. it's a, it's a way of distinguishing between ideas and and you know in in Julia galef's analogy with Scouts I like that way of putting it because it's pointing to a certain role one can take where you really have no position beforehand on what the truth is should be. You just want to know what it actually is. And, you know, all of us at certain times have that, you know, we, we, we might look up at the train timetable and we want to know what time the train is coming and we don't have a preconception about that. So every day we're often just looking to gather information, but at the same time, every day, we're looking to defend our position, defend our view and in fact we're not very good at being swayed from our position and our view on on many things right and you know that's the problem with the the so-called soldier persona or the so-called lawyer persona and that is that uh, the great biases of our cognition are often associated with exactly that type of stance you know you you have a belief and you don't wish to be shaken from that belief and what you do is selectively pull together reasons to hold that belief while ignoring reasons not to hold it why is language good for that and bad for the truth seeker the short answer is that language is not objective it doesn't give you a balanced view of how things are when somebody describes a situation to you or when you describe a situation to yourself you're necessarily being highly selective you know, there's a sense in which language is doubly subjective. One way in which it's subjective is that whoever describes a scene or a situation is necessarily taking a perspective, they're putting something in the subject position, they are viewing it from a certain side, they're only mentioning certain things and not mentioning certain other things. So the the author of the Description is imposing a kind of subjectivity on it, and you can't get away from that in language. No. The second sense in which you have subjectivity is in the resources of the language itself. So it depends which language you're speaking. You you, you have a certain scope for perspective taking, but only within the limits of the resources that your language provides you with. So it all depends whether you speak. Japanese or English or Swahili or any of the other 7,000 languages in the world. And those resources have been developed through the historical practices of the communities that spoke those languages. And that means that your subjective decisions when you talk about the way things are in the world are actually limited in these interesting ways by the kinds of uh, words and structures that you learn when you learn your, your language.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You refer in the book to language
0: as both creator and destroyer. Actually, I heard on another interview that you gave that uh, you were considering that as part of the title of the book, replacing the lawyer-scientist thing. So it reminded me of the Hindu god Shiva, creator and destroyer. So expand
1: on how language can both create and destroy. It's become pretty clear that, well, firstly, on the language as destroyer side, that language really strips away an enormous amount of the detail of our experience of the world. So when I say that language is destroyer in some sense, you have an experience, you see something, you hear something, you feel something, and you want to talk about it, you've necessarily got to strip out a huge amount of information and, and in that sense if you're trying to communicate with someone else convey that experience or convey that perception you know you're necessarily giving a lot less than what you perhaps have in mind so in that sense language is a destroyer it's in the in the interests of efficiency isn't it if we were to try to
0: convey the totality of an experience uh, we'd be asking
1: someone to give up 3 weeks of their life to listen wouldn't we that's right it's exactly right that it's in the interest of efficiency and i guess my question then becomes efficiency for what so when you talk about efficiency of any sort of system you have to say what the goal is that the system is trying to reach and that will determine what's good enough and good enough is the key term here, that the system has to be good enough for the purposes that it's built for or that we're using it for. And then it would be inefficient if you put any more effort into it than that. So the question becomes, what do we achieve through trying to describe things? And what we achieve, and I guess this sort of starts to edge into the, the creator side of language, what we achieve is not simply conveying information what we achieve is social coordination yes that's something different so social coordination does rely often on transferring information these two things are closely intertwined but if i want to get you to for example pass the salt or you know give me some tea or any of the things that i might ask you to do it doesn't matter exactly what shade of white the salt is it doesn't hmm. matter what brand it is or you know how many weeks it's been on the shelf i mean we could talk about the, <laughs> the specifics of this salt as long <laughs> as we want yeah uh, but if my purpose is simply to get some of it over to me then i'll only tell you as much as i need to tell you to get that problem solved and we happen to have a culture where we've got all of these ingredients that sit on our shelves and you know we don't actually you can of course buy many different types of salt and many different types of sugar in, in the supermarket but for a lot of purposes you don't have to specify you know pass me the uh, Himalayan pink salt versus the <laughs> you, you may want to do that if there's a special reason depending on what you're cooking or something like that but if if you just want to sort of sprinkle a bit into your soup then well, that would be an example where you could have been more specific, but you didn't need to be. And being more specific would have been a waste of effort for you as a speaker and also might have confused the, the listener. And what you really want to do is yeah. just kind of solve yeah. this fleeting little kind of uh, coordination problem. Yeah.
0: So and- we've, we've sort of inherited the idea that language is primarily for conveying information. And you're saying that it does convey information, but that's not
1: nearly the whole story i'd say that conveying information is in the service of something more fundamental and more important and that is influencing others manipulating others not necessarily in a negative sense it's really coordinating with others for certain purposes and sometimes that is exploitative other times it's cooperative but it's the social coordination that's key and this is a view that helps us to see language as part of our legacy as animals. Uh, You know, language is, of course, one form of uh, animal communication. And it's obviously special in certain ways, but it still has a continuity with animal communication systems in general. And the feature of animal communication is that it's all about manipulating others and getting others to act in certain ways that you want them to, to act, independent of whether your reason is, is you know, in their interest or or not in their interest. So language is inherently rhetorical. In that sense, yeah. Influencing yeah. others, absolutely. And that, and that is the key to going back to your earlier question about why language is good for lawyers. And mm-hmm. that is that, you know, persuasion is the key. And animal systems use a lot of ways of persuading others to act uh you know uh, by convincing them that you're more powerful for example and then they will flee or convincing them that you're good to mate with uh, etc and so there's a sort of a an influencing principle that underlies any communication system and language builds on that and how it does that is through using the possibility of coding information in this very flexible way. So it's that possibility for coding information that people have tended to heavily focus on as being the unique feature. And I see that as being more, I mean, it is a deeply, deeply important part of language, but it doesn't take away from the fact that language is primarily grounded in this coordinative function rather than an information Mm -hmm. encoding function as its sort of reason for
0: existing. The depressing part of your thesis is that if all language written and spoken is so poor at conveying the totality of reality or the the facts in their their nuanced complexity, is there any hope for objective journalism that would forge a way through the deep political divides that we
1: have at the moment, for example? I know what you mean when you say, you know, it's depressing and people often say that, you know, the idea that that language is very partial, very fragmentary, but I don't think there's any reason to despair. I mean, my first comment would be that, I don't know, you've just won a sports championship or you've just, you know, you're speaking at somebody's funeral. People often remark in exactly these settings, I just, you know, words cannot describe what right. I'm feeling. Yes. And yet, most of the time when we're not in those kinds of you know edge cases, we don't despair about that at all, for the reasons that I was suggesting earlier that we have tasks and we get to perform those tasks using language. and oftentimes as with the salt example, you know, the task is not really about communicating to you the depth of my feeling in some sense. Now you asked about journalism, and of course, the task there, one would hope is to convey truth and to convey facts and to convey information about what's going on in the world. You should be more in that scientist truth seeker scout mode, right? Absolutely. And that means it's hard. There's no doubt that it's hard, but we shouldn't be depressed about that. Now, here's the reason why. It's because we have something called the scientific method. We have a good understanding of what allows us to Gain knowledge and to build knowledge and to proceed with knowledge, while also understanding that knowledge is never final, that it's always provisional. And this is the key kind of insight of philosophers like Karl Popper and commentators like Jonathan Rauch, who've insisted that we have ways of marshalling evidence in favour of things that we think are true and we have a duty to check the claims we're making we have a duty to check other people's claims we have a duty to triangulate to get knowledge from different perspectives and and check in these ways and in the end what we can say is we're pretty sure this is what's going on and here are the reasons and so that's how good journalism operates just in the same way that good science operates you Mm pull together evidence and coming back to your question about language in particular what that means is that you think about different ways that you could describe a situation that you're trying to understand and often bad journalism is the problem with it is that it is taking a single line so all you have to do is look at any kind of biased media outlet and there's plenty of them on any sort of point of the spectrum and you'll see that there's a highly repetitive way of framing the news that is being talked about. So a simple example is something like whether you describe people in unrest on the streets of a city as rioters mm. or protesters. Yes, rioters or protesters, uh, yes. Yeah. Whether you describe people who fire rockets propelled grenades as terrorists or freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a chapter in the book that really focuses on this kind of media discourse. And there's a simple principle, which is triangulate. Think about different ways in which the same situation could have been described and think about what reasons you might have to describe it in that way. So, you know, clearly. You could decide, well, I'm going to describe them as rioters because of the things that they did through bricks, through windows or something like that. But if you can't sort of find the the evidence, you have to look into yourself and ask yourself, am I describing it this way because of how I already independently feel about these people? And oftentimes that's exactly what's going on. I don't like them or i don't support the cause that they support and that's a different reason why you would say i'm going to call them rioters as opposed to protesters because you Mm -hmm. want to convince me that they're unlawful you want to convince me that there's something wrong with what they're doing and and you know that's a very simple very fundamental principle of framing and language is our key device for doing that yep
0: yep um, let's talk about certainty. Ideally, we should all have a posture of even handedness about the truth because the truth is always changing and we never know the complete truth. And so, a um, posture of agnosticism should surely be the preferred mode for a scientist or a journalist. It's often been said that someone who is certain of what's right is the most dangerous person in the room. Uh, and you quote someone in the book, I forget who, saying something like certainty is a thought terminating state of mind i love that quote and you go on to say that language itself is the supreme certainty inducing system so if all this is true we should be terrified by the power of language
1: yeah well we probably should be terrified by the power of language yes for exactly that reason however there's a big caveat here And that is that if you become that afraid of a thought terminating system like language, then you you just become paralyzed for the same reason that you were suggesting earlier, you know, that I I could spend three weeks trying to convey the reality of my experience and we still wouldn't quite get there. You've got to know when enough is enough, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe just to explain what the thought terminating system idea is, if you hear a description of a scene, I'm telling you a story about what happened you know i'm not going to give you a whole lot of details so i might say to you something like i went to the supermarket the other day maybe that's the start of a story i'm going to tell you and just that little phrase i went to the supermarket is thought terminating in the sense that you know that idiom you know what it refers to you know an enormous amount of detail that is imported by that little phrase you know it's implicit right it's implicit for the speaker and the listener right it's all implicit. It's all introduced. To you, you know, you've suddenly you've got shopping trolleys in your mind. You've got the shopping aisles. You've got the different products. You've got the people there and the jobs that they perform, and all of these things become activated. So, in in one sense, that's thought activating, but it's thought terminating in the sense that you stop wondering about what is being described to you. It's suddenly being delivered to you and you work essentially in terms of stereotypes. And and these stereotypes are thought terminating in that sense. Now, we should definitely be vigilant about these thought terminating effects. And I would probably want to err on the side of being vigilant and not kind of accepting the simplistic descriptions of what what people are talking about but at a certain point you've got to move on i mean we don't have endless capacity for processing what's being described to us we're dealing with lots of things in the flow of interaction we're trying to understand uh, let's say a story and a story comes at us clause by clause phrase by phrase word by word we cannot afford to overthink what we're hearing so you've got to get the balance right between staying agnostic, as you put it, and kind of thinking to oneself, okay, I I don't really know what kind of uh, supermarket this is, or I don't really know what kind of unrest this was in this news story. At a certain point, you have to go on with a provisional understanding of what you think's the case. In a sense, that's what words encode really is kind of workable, not particularly dangerous provisional images of what's probably happening. And, and those mm. are evolved through conversations where you know exactly that balance is is being met all the time so i think that the key to not being kind of dangerously agnostic or kind of paralyzingly agnostic is is just being more mindful of when you're terminating your sort of wondering about the things that are being described through language yes and then being mindful about letting that happen
0: I was fascinated by the idea that actually reporting or creating a narrative account of an experience actually diminishes our ability to accurately recall it later. I'd love you to tell me about the experiment that you described
1: in the book that proved this to be true. Yeah, it's a fascinating finding of the psychology of language that we can overwrite our memories and we can overwrite our beliefs about something that we've seen or experienced and in the book I talk about actually a series of experiments early on the psychologists who were looking at gestalt perception were showing simple kind of abstract line drawings to people and asking them to remember these and then draw them later as accurately as they could and they found that people weren't particularly accurate and I mean, they could be reasonably accurate, but oftentimes they would redraw something and the inaccuracies would actually go in the direction of making something look more like a familiar object. So, you mm. know, a, a wiggly line would begin to look more like a letter W. And people who were running these experiments noticed that this is exactly how people spoke about what they were seeing. So, subsequent experiments used language to try to induce different. of renderings of drawings imagine a square with a kind of diamond shape in the middle of it and that you could think of it as a diamond inside a square or you could think of it as a window with curtains hanging down that have been sort of tied back um or or you could imagine for example uh two circles joined by a line that look like eyeglasses if that line is a little bit of a bump that would go over your nose or or there could be dumbbells if that line was sort of more straight Mm. and experiments found that if you label these images in different ways as you're presenting them to people later they will redraw them more in the direction of the label that you gave so you know if you called that same image eyeglasses someone later will draw it looking more like eyeglasses than it actually looked so this kind of led to a hypothesis that language can you know, overwrite how you remember things, and it can cause you to import or throw away information, if you like. So this overwriting is in in the destroyer mode, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think probably the experiment that you're thinking of is the one, there were several that were kind of connected around the work of Elizabeth Loftus, who's a psychologist of memory. And in one study by students of hers, there was a video of a bank robbery and you you would show this to people and they would see the perpetrator's face and see the robbery unfold and then you'd take one group of people who'd seen the video and you'd ask them to describe the person's face as accurately as they could and you know let them talk as long as they wanted to about the The visual image of the person's face Uh, and and the other group, you get them to do some other task and you wouldn't give them an opportunity to speak about the face that they saw. But everyone in the experiment saw the same person's face in the same video clip. And then later when you show this full group of people faces in a lineup, you find that the ones who described the face using words were worse at identifying the face Mm -hmm. that they'd seen that's a, that absolutely fascinated me yeah and people have replicated this with other things the tastes of wines you know, you can show people tables and lamps from a furniture catalog. And if they labeling them linguistically, then later, they're actually worse at remembering which <laughs> tables and lamps they've seen. Uh, so what it indicates is that the very act of categorizing something linguistically is an act of discarding, distinguishing information, essentially. So okay. if you code something experience using language, for example, by describing it to another person, you are getting the advantage of kind of more efficiently communicating it to the other person in some sense. I mean, with faces, it's interesting because we're pretty hopeless that actually, I mean, I can't describe a person's face to you in words such that you could then uh, pick it out. from. And
0: and unfortunately, we haven't yet developed
1: the uh, ability to telepathically communicate what we've seen. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So you know, it has this effect on our own thought, on our own beliefs and memories that that actually you know overwrites or overshadows as as those researchers just termed it our own belief and experience. And that's again another kind of edge case where most of the time it really doesn't matter that you've done this to yourself. but of course in cases like, eyewitness testimony, uh, it's an extremely consequential effect. You know, you are uh, potentially sending someone to jail for a crime they didn't commit, or exonerating someone who was guilty. Yeah, yeah. So if if language didn't evolve
0: for the primary purpose of conveying this information, uh, I know you've said that it certainly has an important role to play in conveying information accurately, but it's maybe not the as important a uh, function as we have hitherto thought. So, so what, what in fact, did drive the evolution of language? Was it, was it the society building
1: that you referred to earlier? Well, social interaction is at the core of it, I would say, and a lot of people who've been considering this question would say the same thing. Uh, there are different views about how important social interaction was but I'm of the view that, in line with a kind of an idea of gradualism of, of of continuity with our evolutionary past, that you know language is fundamentally about social influence between people within a group, and of course what language does is it supercharges this, you know the kinds of things that we would do through other forms of behaviour in a social group it allows us to take information and update each other about social goings on. That's an important piece of what language allows us to do that's analogous with some things that other forms of animal communication do. It's really all about building and maintaining relationships between people. And we use information to do that. But the primary goal is really to Either forge or tweak or maintain relationships that we have with other people so any kind of conversation that we have is somehow affirming the relationship with that we have with that person or is somehow yeah building on it or or exploiting it mm. and or reinforcing our tribal membership yeah absolutely so you know you we of course have relationships of very many different kinds in everyday life and some of them uh, with complete strangers, uh, you know, just uh, institutional service relationships, like buying something at a shop or something, uh, and others are very deep personal relationships and family relationships and friendships and all of this. And, and every one of those relationships demands different kinds of behaviour and language is heavily relied on to, to kind of deal with this uh, maintenance of, of relationships mm. so the kinds of things that we talk about to different people um, are a part of that so for example the topics or the subjects or the matters the items of information that you would actually share with people have a strong correlation with you know who you are to that person so a, a good example of that is personal problems or you know medical conditions uh, you you find that there's a an expectation that you can and also that you should share very personal information with people who we would regard as being close to you. So it's a sign of a close relationship that you would tell someone about your personal problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what language allows us to do. I can tell you about something that you can't see yourself or you haven't experienced yourself. Why would I do that? Well, I would do it because I want to get you to exchange the same kind of information with me. I want to show you that I'm demonstrating that I trust you with that information, um, that I treat you differently from everybody else. There's a lot of reasons why we share information. And when you start to look at personal relationship types, you begin to see that there's a, a map in a way of the kind of information we share and the kind of people who we are to each other. So, you know, I would, I'm would i not going to talk now on this Podcast with you about my personal problems, uh, because precisely because I'm designing what I'm saying for, for the audience that I have, and, and we're very mindful of these distinctions around what we should talk about and what it signals about who we are and about who we are to other people.
0: Yes, yes, but going to the uh, going back to what I call the tribal reinforcement, the social allegiance, I, I you had a quote. I think it was Curtis Yarvin uh, who said, and you quoted him: "For the purpose of social allegiance, it's actually better if the belief that people coordinate around is patently false." Now that that idea exhilarated me and depressed me. No end, <laughs> fascinating idea.
1: Yeah, so that's a point that's been made. You know, I think that point was being made by that author in relation to conspiracy theories, and kind of crazy beliefs that you encounter in the media. And so the
0: the crazier the belief system, the better it is at, at, at forging these deep allegiances with other similar believers.
1: That's the claim. And the reasoning is that if you state a belief, what you're doing is putting yourself in the camp in the group of people who also hold that belief now you know if i say to you well i believe that water is good to drink you know that that's not going to differentiate me and i'm not exactly going out on a limb uh you know we (laughs) we all would agree with that so i'm not saying anything about myself but if you were to Um, say uh
0: i believe that salt water is good to drink then you'd be going out on a limb
1: right I certainly would be, and there'd be a real problem with that. And that would be that now I would be committing myself to uh, drinking some salt water to show you. So you know that we, we have to be careful about the crazy beliefs that you mm-hmm. uh, that you assert. And I mean, this is a very real point because it's it's clearly you know there are people who hold beliefs that are that are deadly. There's a huge risk involved there, and we see that. I mean, all of this whole discussion goes quite quickly to supernatural beliefs and religion. Yes. Religion if you look at the anthropology of religion this point's been made by anthropologists like Robin Dunbar and Camilla Power and Chris Knight and others that everywhere in the world people will organize their kind of religious affiliation around statements of belief in in the supernatural. They might talk about spirits that can move through walls, they might talk about Uh, entities that can't die you know they'll talk about things which nobody has experienced directly which you can't just go out and show people which in fact require pure faith to hold those beliefs and this is exactly the kind of thing that you know that that also Curtis Yavin is talking about and so the reasoning is if we all commit to this belief which at some level we know is, is not true or there's really no evidence for it then what we're doing is showing a what's sometimes called an honest signal, an honest signal of our commitment to that group because we're willing to sort of stand up as a group and say, yeah, we believe this thing, uh, which actually we don't have evidence for. It's typically a belief that someone in the next valley is going to say no we don't believe that we believe this other thing and that is where encoding a proposition is functioning as a marker of identity and uh, you know what that proposition happens to be can can often be immaterial or sort of irrelevant to its primary function which is differentiating us through the commitments that we hold
0: yes it would be difficult to imagine a successful religion that was predicated upon agnosticism or uncertainty
1: yeah well science kind of fits that bill and i suppose that's why it's not a religion it's an interesting discussion to have so some people of course do like to say that science involves commitments where you can't ever really sort of prove certain things i don't think that's quite right but i think that there is a commitment to this idea of agnosticism of provisionalness of any kind of claim but if anything was going to get to that point of sort of overriding supernaturalism, of course, it would be the scientific worldview. Mm
0: -hmm. I like the idea in the book that, uh, for instance, we have only a very few words for colors while we're able to discriminate thousands of shades of colors, far more than we could ever describe in words to another person and have them experience that sense of that color. So, So complete reality, the kind that you could achieve only with say, complicated instruments or by divine revelation, if you will, is sort of inaccessible to language. So, you know, colors, you mentioned facial expressions, nuances of feeling, uh, those moments of ineffability and transcendence are all described very, very imperfectly by words. It, It sort of forces you to that mystic in the cave vow of silence kind of a world where you you eschew language in favor of some higher reality.
1: Yeah, I can see the logic behind doing that, although I wouldn't opt for it myself. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know, is perfect the enemy of the good, uh, would be my sort of way of thinking about this. You know, language isn't perfect, but it's really good. That's. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. the question is good, good for what? Well, it's good for the the functions that we tend to use it for. uh, And that is uh, coordinating around things like, which cup do I want you to pass me the red one, just because I haven't described to you the precise shade of red what i've done is i've used a categorization of color that is good enough for the purpose of you picking out the you know one object among a number of objects yes. and that would I be i think in an,
0: in another interview you talked about finding you know your car is red you're in the parking lot you know mine is the red car and if that's good enough to identify the car it doesn't matter about the shade of red right
1: yeah and you'll find another way to differentiate if all the cars are red or there are five cars with different shades of red you might then opt for some of the more specific terms that we have like I don't know scarlet or deep red or something like that yes. um, or you would opt for some other way of solving the same problem so the question becomes what are the purposes that I'm trying to pursue using language what are the problems mm-hmm. I'm trying to solve using language and then you start to realize well Language is good enough for solving all of these really diverse problems. It's this incredibly flexible tool. And you know, the last thing I would want to be known for saying would be that, you know, language is hopeless and we should all stop speaking. You, you just got to know what, what purpose the language is being put to in the given moment. And you
0: and language is very flexible, as you say, and and, and adapts yeah, and you, adapts you, to the purpose at
1: hand. That's right. And you want to kind of embrace the constructive capacity of language you know you, you you asked earlier about language as destroyer and creator and if we sort of think not about the destructive side of language but about the creative side of language it's not just creative in the sense that I can write a story or or, or make something up and tell it to you something mm-hmm. you've never heard before it's clearly creative in that sense but it creates in another sense, which is that it creates bonds, it creates the possibility of activity and cooperation, it creates mutual attention to things that you know we need to be looking at together in some activity that we're holding. And it also creates a common ground for people within a culture, a set of shared norms, a set of shared expectations, a set of shared knowledge that we can build up through things like storytelling, through things like just using the idioms of the language that, that we all speak. So there is a, a really important sense in which language is this richly creative thing. And if we focus on the idea that it is representational of reality in some way, well, yeah, then we'll end up getting depressed and we'll end yes. up thinking, no, it's this kind of you know substandard Device and let's stop talking. But if instead we <laughs> reframe, we reframe our expectations around language based on what it's actually for. You know, then suddenly you see that's it, this it's this incredibly rich social tool. Yeah,
0: yeah. One one thing you cite for the purpose of language is communicative need, and and I love the um, the story that you tell in the book about the Cree story, the story of the being in the canoe with the guys and uh, and the story of the bird. Tell that story again. I think it's deeply illustrative.
1: So, I do field work on languages of Laos in mainland Southeast Asia. And I have to go to pretty isolated places to do that work. So, these are working with rather small languages spoken in the mountains, and these are rainforest areas. And so, I'm doing some work one morning, moving from one village to the next, collecting. Uh, words and collecting basic information on the language and I hitched a ride with a couple of guys who were going upstream on a canoe and so you know they they said I could get a ride with them to go from one village to the next and I'm just sitting in the back of this canoe as as they're sort of poling the canoe up the river it's pretty quiet uh, sort of surrounded by forest and then at a certain moment this huge bird kind of burst out of the canopy and and across the kind of break in the tree line over the the river. And one of the guys looked at the other and said, vong wow. And, you know, so I wrote this word down, vong wow, what's that? This bird just kind of, it was this, one of these big kind of uh, peacock type of birds it's called a crested argus and it flew off. And then later when when I was kind of going through my notes and talking to people about the words I, I was learning that day, this word that he'd uttered, to his associate was simply the name of the bird so it's like you know i see a, a magpie come out of a tree and i say i turn to you and i say magpie and you know this kind of puzzled me and when you sort of think about things like that you see them all the time especially when you're with little kids uh, and adults will very often just point to stuff and and then name it when a little kid uh, is there and then that's often reciprocated. And so I I got to thinking, well, what was the function? What was the purpose of this man simply saying the name of this bird to to his associate when when the bird was uh, in front of them? And I mean, the plot really thickened for me because one of the things I was trying to do was to map out people's knowledge of vocabulary for the nature around them. And birds, there's plenty of birds in these forests. And they have names for all of these birds. But I started to think, well, when do they ever use these names? And they don't hunt the birds. They don't catch them or feed them or raise them or eat them. They just see them flying by in these types of contexts. And uh, and so it made me realize this is exactly the function that they have these bird names for, is to call out the name and, in a sense, share that moment. And this is kind of one of the fundamental tools that, are, that a word can can serve as that is to align our attention on something and and share that attention and kind of share that experience that we we happen to be having we, we see this in animals we see it in the i, I talk in the book about uh the species of monkey that will you know pairs of these monkeys will they'll show aggression towards some common focus of aggression which uh, more often than not, turns out to be some inanimate object like a, like an eggshell or a stick, uh, and the reason is basically the same as the scene I've just described. It's it's a way of getting two individuals who are related in some way to coordinate around their focus of attention and to kind of bond with each other in some in some kind of way. And this- so they re- they rehearse an act of aggression against something that needs no aggression. Exactly. And you could think of it as rehearsal, and I suppose it is that, but I don't, that's not how I really view it. I think that, you know, the a joint act of aggression that two monkeys might carry out is, it is indeed an act of aggression towards some third party, but just as importantly, it's an act of bringing together those two individuals who are jointly kind of uh, venting their aggression. And, and and indeed, that's what we see in many aspects of human life. You know, I, if I'm a supporter of one football team, and, you know, we, I'm with another supporter of that football team, or well, we're, we're doing the same thing, we're kind of taking a position, we might kind of mock someone who supports our our enemy team, you know, and that would be the same thing that through that common stance toward a third party we are kind of aligning with each other in some in some kind of way so the example of the man pointing out the bird to his associate even though his associate can see it uh they both they
0: both know full well what their bird is and it needs
1: no naming so yeah So the act of naming itself is being used as a way of bringing the two of them together and simply sharing experience for the sake of sharing experience. A lot of what we do in language fundamentally comes down to that. So, you know, if I tell you something funny that happened to me on the bus this morning, it's basically the same kind of mechanism. Uh, Going back to the discussion that we had earlier about the kinds of things you tell to different people in your life. Yes. Yes. that fundamentally is the same type of, of function that you're aligning with people and showing that you share something uh, with them and that, therefore, you're related in a certain way.
0: Yes, yes. The framing and inversion chapter, I love that chapter. It reminded me of an experience I had in the Provincial Museum of British Columbia over in Canada Uh a few years back, I, um, I've always noticed th- this about myself in museums that I, I will go up to a display case and, uh, you know, something in the display case, and then there's, there's a label on the window. And before I've even looked at the artifact, I've gone and read the darn label. You say in that chapter, I think, how I see an image is a private matter, how I label it is an imposition on others so am i am i talking about the right thing in context with your framing and inversion thesis here
1: yes you are so the example i give is one of the examples i give is artwork and then give given artwork so
0: oh I, know, I, you... I forgot to finish my provincial museum story the thing of the provincial museum of british columbia is that they don't do that they leave you to experience in in ignorance, stand there before the exhibit and only slowly, slowly, slowly get the gestalt of what's being conveyed. And and the depth of your experience is that much greater as a result. So I I skipped the important conclusion to my story, but but
1: back to your art museum. Well, I like your story very much, and I think it indicates the danger of, words as thought terminating devices, as we spoke about earlier. And and that's what I think removing the label helps to avoid. When you see a label, it makes you go, oh, now I know what it is. And I don't need to sort of inspect it any more closely. So in that case, not only would it be a thought terminating device, but also an action terminating device, You, you, you now sort of feel satisfied that you know what the thing is and you'll move on to the next exhibit in the art gallery case it's the same that you go up to an image i'm not sure what the museum shows maybe it shows artifacts and things like that an art gallery of course shows you some artistic representations perhaps of objects and people perhaps just of feelings and impressions and you know, it's interesting to to wonder why you need labels at all. When you wonder that, you start to realize how incredibly powerful labels are, because they tell you what you're looking at, even though you're already looking at it. Wheat field with crows is the example I often use. I'm not sure, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the book, but it's a Van Gogh painting. You know, there's more than a wheat field and crows in the picture. Uh, they're just not mentioned in the in the label and so the question becomes well what would be the effect of calling it something else like uh you know a path through a field or you know um mm-hmm. sky or something like that or you, happiness you know, th- those or t- misery or exactly and that's what i mean by saying that how you label something becomes an imposition on others because you're directing their thinking in terms of you know, what they're supposed to be paying attention to and thereby what they are less likely to pay attention to. So mentioning the crows, for example, in that, in that painting causes you to perhaps think about those crows, whatever thought processes you might go through are being invited.
0: The totality of the scene is no more about any one item in the scene than any other. The total reality is this interaction of an infinite number of items in the picture.
1: Yeah, and so you mentioned framing and that that's very much what we're talking about here with labels, but also you mentioned inversion and that's something I talk about in the book. It's basically a kind of framing, but it's about sort of figure ground reversal. So're the famous images of, you know the two faces pointing towards each other if you see them as kind of black against a white background or it's a, trophy if you see it as white against the black background yeah, are these faces yeah. or is it a trophy yes it typically it's presented to you with both of those words alongside it so it kind of you know it's, it's highlighting the very fact that there's a a kind of a symmetry between these two interpretations but if I just hang it on the wall and I give it a single label I just call it trophy then what I'm doing is kind of deciding i'm determining that that's how you should view it that's the proper way to view it mm-hmm. is as the trophy even though the face is, uh, is 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 an available kind of visual interpretation so that's uh, that inversion is possible and it's i think closely related to the kinds of linguistic inversion that you get of things like you know terrorist versus freedom fighter or mm-hmm. rioter versus protester that what you're doing is telling the listener or the reader how they are supposed to interpret what it is that is being depicted words end up being labels for much of their
0: life don't they i mean that's what that's what they are we label things with words and so the very act of naming something maybe that's why maybe that's why um in some religions you're forbidden from using the name of god so that you you don't, constrict, yeah. you don't constrict the meaning of of god maybe that's
1: it i'm not sure i mean i think i mean the labels question is is interesting and and i think the word label i like to replace that word with instruction and so a label is, is an instruction for how you should think about something and that mm. instruction is you know given to you by the person who who wrote it uh, and so there's a kind of a A power a real active bit of influence that's going on with any kind of label is it's an instruction for how you how you're supposed to understand or think about what's being presented on the matter of proscribing labels for certain things i think there are different ways in which you can think about that but one that i would want to mention would be that amongst all of this language gives us tools for kind of social functions and one of those tools is Uh, you know taboo and avoidance and so with a lot of culture there's very often some kind of marginal rules that you have to follow that give you a little bit of inconvenience or that give you a kind of an occasional test just like table manners in some sense right you have to learn these not really rational kind of rules but you still have to follow them if you don't you know you've made some kind of transgression and i think that no elbows on the table said my mother a thousand times why should there not be elbows on the table, for heaven's sake? Exactly. So the only reason why there shouldn't be elbows on the table is because there's a rule there shouldn't be elbows on the table, and it's not—that's not a facetious remark. Although you know it would be regarded as one if a child said it to their to their mother. Mm-hmm. uh but, but really, that's all it is. Okay, we have a small number of arbitrary rules in our culture, and you know if you're not following them, then you haven't taken on this little burden of remembering and being vigilant about avoiding doing that thing that would make you a good member of this society. So I think this is what's going on when you ban words from usage or you restrict words uh, in their usage. I don't think it necessarily has to do with the kind of conceptual effects of using them, but rather these minor inconveniences that one has to be vigilant about in order to be a a proper kind of uh, member of society. I
0: love the story of you, of you as a visitor in the uh, Cree house using the wrong door and sitting in the wrong place. Tell that story. That's great. So,
1: in the villages of Cree speaking people in Laos, the house layout, uh, you know, family homes are laid out in a particular way that has meaning. And this shouldn't be too exotic an idea. You know, if, if if you welcome a guest into your house, you'll show them into, you know, a living room or, or some kind of uh, more public-facing area where they'll be served tea or something like that. You wouldn't probably show them into your bedroom as the place where they would sit down and, and have their tea, um, or at least that would be interpreted in some kind of special way. So Cree people similarly have... Essentially, rules about where one sits, but the rules are different to the ones that I grew up with. And these are not multi-room houses. These are basically just kind of, uh, you know, small rectangles that you just go inside the, the the room. And you need to understand that the house is sort of divided into these four quadrants. Uh, there's an up-down axis and there's an inside-outside axis, as they're known. And This means that a certain corner of the square is the right place for guests to sit. You know, that if you walk into the house, that would be the top left corner. So guests should sit there because they're high on one axis and they're also outsiders on another axis, whereas the kind of innermost people should sit on the opposite side of the house. And if you're low in status, you should sit in the low inside corner. And the lowest status person in the household is the son-in-law. So if a, <laughs> if a boy marries your daughter then until such time as he moves into his own house and sets up a family he's regarded as a very kind of low specimen and will always sit in this one corner of the house uh, which is the diagonally opposite corner from where a respected guest should sit. And so I was ignorant of all of this when I first went into this community and you know, one of my first learning experiences was just blissfully unaware walking into somebody's house and sitting down squarely in the spot that is reserved for for sons-in-law. And, you know, this created great laughter and kind of people joking and which they joked about for weeks and months afterwards. <laughs> uh you know, Nick has sat down and he must be a son-in-law of this household. And everyone found this to be hilarious. And so I immediately learned that, you know, there's a, there was this whole logic, this whole kind of calculus to where you sat. And indeed when you when you attend parties in people's homes, when a lot of people are inside the the home, there's a very careful working out of who should sit higher than whom uh Mm -hmm. who should sit in which place so there's this kind of diagram of the the social relationship much more complicated than the downton abbey table seating protocol even perhaps yes perhaps it's certainly very highly negotiated uh, in this case you know and people um, the man of the household in particular will get very exercised around trying to figure out who should be sitting higher than whom and You know, this is non-linguistic, but it's very much like the kinds of things that one can do with language, not where you sit, but what you can say and to whom. Yes, yes, yes. Since this podcast is
0: about the spoken word, why don't we finish by my asking if what you've said about language being good for lawyers and bad for scientists, do your hypotheses
1: apply equally to the spoken word as to the written? my basic answer is when i talk about language i'm by default talking about not not about the written language whether it's about scientists or lawyers uh, and the reason is because written language is only very recent in the history of language in the world right, and it right. is it only applies to a small proportion of the languages spoken in the world we are of course awash with written language if if your topic of study is human language taken most generally then you will know that uh, the vast vast majority of human language whether that is you know uh, examples of english words uh, uttered you know or created or expressed on a given day or whether it's you know the number of human languages spoken in the world the vast majority of of language is is not written uh, and so whether you're a lawyer or a scientist, uh, whether you're speaking, you know, whether you, whether your language is English or some other language, then spoken language is by far the dominant modality.
0: And has been and for the for the majority of human history, of course.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, it's only very recent, very recent, that there's been literacy at all, and mm-hmm. particularly that such large proportions of the population are literate. This is, you know, we're in the middle of a a very recent very radical revolution and so when i talk about language certainly my default is is spoken language and what we do with yes. it and when we interact with each other yes yes
0: so predictions mr anthropologist linguist a million years fast forward a million years what will language be like in another million or two years do you think if we survive that long
1: one of the factors has to be that in a million years we could be another species <laughs> uh, biological evolution continues and we are subject to natural selection and so that you know that we, we could be another species particularly if we start dividing and kind of you know colonizing other planets and so mm-hmm. forth not sure how likely that is but it's not impossible. Uh, you could or, imagine or, it.
0: Or if we become cyborgs and interfa- interface with AI.
1: Yeah, a lot of those things could happen. Uh, so one, one uh, it's impossible to know, obviously, so it's a very wildly speculative question. But one answer would be we might be a different kind of animal. And it would seem highly likely that we would be a different kind of animal um, simply because uh, natural selection doesn't go away. We we remain biological. And so it could be that we evolve our capacities in some kind of way to change the way that language is. But I just I really have no speculations about what (laughs) that would look like. I would point out, though, that it could well be that language in some sense becomes more advanced, um, but it could similarly be that it kind of contracts in some interesting mm. sense, you know. And I sometimes think that, uh, I mean, I haven't read this since I was in high school, but there's a, a play or a short story called Flowers for Algernon where some, yes. you, know, you know, that somebody, you know, gets these, these insights, this incredible kind of wisdom only to discover that they now understand that that wisdom is going to recede so that's possible i I mean assuming nothing of that kind happens languages will continue to evolve at roughly the rate that they currently evolve and we know all languages are changing radically uh, all the time they are developing in ways that respond to the culture, the society of those who speak them. And so languages will change, they'll remain flexible, and they will always encode to some extent the interests of the community members, or at least of the uh, not long prior ancestors of the community members. So I don't think that those properties of language are going to change, but individual languages themselves will continually develop in ways that adapt to the needs of their speakers for coordination and sense-making.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that speculation, Professor Nick Enfield. Thank you so much for joining me this morning.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It was great.
0: And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Nick Enfield. To learn more about Professor Enfield, please visit the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Because most of you listening to this podcast probably find it through your favorite podcast channel or index, you might not be aware of the webpage at paulmeyer.com that I devote to each episode. If that's true, you're missing out on a lot of extra content, such as the guest's bio and photo, links to their publications, online lectures, interviews, etc., and other interesting tidbits. To get that extra free content, go to paulmeyer.com, choose in a manner of speaking, from the Other Services tab on the menu bar and click the episode of your choice. Easy. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is my old friend, David Crystal, who taught me everything I know about Shakespeare's original pronunciation. This will be Professor Crystal's fourth appearance on this podcast, making him rather a regular This time we're going to talk about his wonderful book Sounds Appealing The Passionate Story of English Pronunciation Next time on In a Manner of Speaking